looking forward to it. Let's stand together uh, this morning and, and come to the scripture. We're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 21. And is our, as is our normal practice, uh, I'll begin reading. You continue to read uh, to the end of the passage today. So let's read. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. A lot of good news in there, all right? Amen. The title today that we'll be working from is The Guts of Discipleship. The Guts of Discipleship. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, this morning for your word uh, that you have preserved for us and kept for us and that you use in the lives of all of your people, that you might conform us more and more to your image in order that we will fulfill that which you have called us and redeemed us for. Father, we pray that in the coming moments you'll speak to us by your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, that our lives may more reflect you uh, on the other side of this time than they had before. Be with us, mold us and shape us in these ways we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may be seated. We're going to talk about the guts of discipleship, and we'll see that in this passage, uh, Paul actually has a lot of guts in the way that he is presenting and talking about discipleship. But before we go into talking about uh, the right way to do discipleship or characteristics of someone who makes disciples, I wanted to just take a minute or two to talk about one wrong way of discipleship. Uh, and uh, we could go on for a long time because there are many wrong ways to do discipleship. But, but one thing that's become uh, fairly popular um, in our culture these days as we gravitate towards spirituality, but spirituality that isn't fixed to the Bible, is the idea of positive self-affirmations. How many have heard of that? Positive self-affirmations. How many of those did yours this morning? You don't have to raise your hands right now, but, but the, the, this idea that if I say certain things a certain way a certain number of times and just believe them enough, that uh, the universe is going to kind of conspire to uh, mold and shape my life in a particular way. And so there was an article a few years ago. Uh, I saw it in the Huffington Post. The name of the article was 35 Affirmations That Will Change Your Life. <laughs> glory to, not glory to God, glory to the force of the universal whatever. Um, so uh, this idea that these self-affirmations will change everything about your life. The writer says this, she, she says, if you believe the phrase, you are what you think, then life truly stems from your thoughts. But we cannot rely purely on our thoughts. We must translate thoughts into words and eventually into actions in order to manifest our intentions. The art of the spoken word is critical in crafting our futures. As a teacher of spirituality, it is my firm belief 
that we influence the universe word by word. If we dictate to it our wishes, it will respond. If you consistently say, I can't, the energy of your words will repel the universal force against you. But if you say, I can, the universe will endow you with the abilities to do just that. So she says, so speak away. Relinquish your fears and purge your anger. Predict your own future and live up to your potential with the 35 affirmations that will change your life. Amen and amen. People are making a lot of money on this. And there, there, is, a, uh, there, there is a piece of truth connected there, right? That, that we need to believe on certain things in a certain way. So there's a piece of truth, but it's disconnected from biblical truth. And that's a problem. So I just want to look uh, for just a minute at a few of the affirmations that really struck me. So there were 35, but the third one is this. Number three is, my body is healthy, my mind is brilliant, my soul is tranquil. <laughs> now, if I just broke my leg or have a disease in my body, or my wife may tell you a couple things about my mind that you don't want to know. You know, I, I can affirm those things all I want. The truth of the matter is that I need to go to a doctor. I need to get some help or pray to God. I need to acknowledge the reality of my current condition. All the affirmation in the world isn't going to change it. I love the second one that I have here. Um, it's number nine on her list if you're married. My marriage is becoming stronger, deeper, and more stable each day. I'm not paying attention to my wife. I don't halfway go to work or bring home a paycheck. Uh, I, I, I'm not doing the things that the scripture tells me I should do as a husband, but I'm going to affirm every day that my marriage is becoming stronger, deeper, and more stable. No, it's not. You're in trouble, and it's a mess. Right. Uh, the third one that I have outlined here, number 14 on her list, my ability to conquer my challenges is limitless. My potential to succeed is infinite. Whenever we use words like limitless and infinite about our little finite behinds, we are living in la-la land. I am not limitless. I am uh, not uh, infinite. I'm very finite. I, 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 I exist based on the grace of God, whether I acknowledge it or not. Uh, the next one is kind of like it. Uh, my future is not, no, wait, I am a powerhouse. I am indestructible. <laughs> wow. Wow. We are not indestructible. Ask Teddy Bridgewater. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Quarterback for Minnesota Vikings, a, a, fi a, a finely toned athlete, a man who has worked out, a man who is strong, and he's in a non-contact football drill, and his knee blows out. Teddy Bridgewater, wherever he is today, is not saying, I am indestructible. He recognizes, like we all need to recognize, that we are weak and frail, and we need help. Uh, the next one, he says, my future is an ideal projection of what I envision now. Now, that is only true if what you're envisioning now is everyone that you've ever known in this world struggling, many of them getting sick, dying, uh, uh, some of them being touched by tragedy, yourself being touched by tragedy. If you're envisioning all of that, and can see everything that's going to happen, then maybe it's true. But you're not, uh, you're not uh, having an ideal uh, of what the future would be to make it come together that way. Life just doesn't work that way. We live in a fallen, broken world, and we've got to recognize that. Number 26, uh, she says, my efforts are being supported by the universe. Wow, that's really great. My dreams manifest into reality before my eyes. Now look, we should all be having some, we have dreams in life and we work towards uh, those things happening, but saying over and over again that your efforts are being supported by the universe simply isn't true. The universe can't support squat. The universe is created by the Creator. 
the universe's planets and stars and space and meteors and all of these things, they are inanimate objects that are created by God. It is God that we need to tap into. The God of the Bible, the personal and true God of Scripture, not tapping into some universal force. The last one that she says is my nature is divine. Notice the capital D. I am a spiritual being. Now, we are spiritual beings. At one point, Peter says that we're partakers of the divine nature, but that's not the intent of this saying here. What she is saying in the capital D gives it away is I am divine. I am God. God is not only in me, but, but I am divine. That's pantheism because I'm not only saying I'm God, but you're God, and uh, probably the chair is God, and the carpet is God, and look at me, I'm walking on God, you know? I mean, just this idea that these affirmations bring things to happen in such a way, man, that's a good idea. In some ways, I wish it was true, it would make discipleship real easy. Someone comes to you with a broken life, you figure out some affirmations to give them and say, look in the mirror and say this 10 times a day and everything in your life is going to come into this great order and you'll be all right. Problem is, that's not real. That's not life. And when you begin to speak affirmations that are, don't line up at all with biblical truth or what God says about you. You are not bringing reality into subjection of, 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 of your words, but you are simply falling deeper and deeper into a delusion of what your life actually is. It's not true. It doesn't work that way. And so we come to the scripture today and Paul is laying out some truths here in this beautiful book of Philippians. Philippians is a unique letter in the New Testament. Most of the letters are written because there's a certain crisis in the church. In Corinth, Paul has to write several letters because they are messed up in so many different ways. And there are practices that they're undertaking that he has to uh, go at each one and correct the way that the Corinthians are living out their faith. In Galatians and in Colossians, there are certain heresies that have spread into those churches and Paul writes them these letters in order to correct the heresies and to come against the, fault, the false teachers and teach them again the pure gospel that he first gave to them through his missionary uh, endeavors. But here, with the church of Philippi, none of those things are going on. It's not a perfect church, but there's no major crisis of, of doctrine. There's no major practice that is threatening the life of the church. As a matter of fact, the main occasion for the writing of this epistle is that Paul is about to send back to the Philippians, a young man who they sent to him to help him out during his imprisonment in Rome. The young man's name is Epaphroditus. And so uh, Epaphroditus is being sent back. And, and Paul says, you know, I want you to receive him back. He has worked hard for the Lord. He almost died while he was with me. And I want you to receive him back. And he writes this incredible epistle. He writes it from a Roman prison. And he, he doesn't know what's going to happen in that imprisonment. Will he live or will he die? But the beautiful thing about this epistle is it's laden and strewn throughout with rejoicing and joy that comes from the Lord. And so he's writing this prison epistle uh, to this church that he is deeply endeared to. He had planted it along with his team probably six or seven years earlier than the writing of this epistle. And he loves these folks at Philippi. And so he's writing to them. And we come to this third chapter, uh, starting at verse 12 in this epistle. So we, we, we don't want to learn the wrong way of discipleship, but we want to, to learn uh, what characteristics do effective 
disciple makers exhibit in their lives? I'm glad you asked that question. Here's the first one. The first one is they exhibit a biblical understanding of self. A biblical understanding of self. This is totally juxtaposed to the 35 positive affirmations about your life. You're not making stuff up that you want it to be, but you are digging in the Word of God and saying, what is it that God says about me? And so therefore, I walk and I live and I'm able to make disciples out of the reality that I have an understanding of myself that's informed by the Word of God. So let's look at what that might look like. Verse 12. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I'll stop right there. He says, not that I've already obtained this. Obviously, we're picking up this reading in the middle of a chapter, right? What is he talking about when he, sees, when he says this? Well, if you look at verses 10 and 11, it will tell you the answer. Verse 10 says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may, obtain the I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. When he says, I haven't already obtained this, what he's talking about is the resurrection of the dead. What he's talking about is the final state of the believer in Jesus Christ that comes about when we receive our, our, our resurrection body, a body like Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I haven't received it yet. I'm not there yet. And then he says, and I'm not already perfect. If, if you're looking for a perfect disciple or apostle, you're looking at the wrong guy. I'm not it. And so when we begin to talk about what does a biblical understanding of self look like, I'm going to give you a four-letter acronym, but the first letter is H, and that stands for humility. Paul says, I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not going to act like I'm the guy who has everything together. Listen, when you're making disciples and you are, are, are working with people and fronting your life as if everything in your life is perfectly together, you're not helping that other person. You're making yourself an idol, and if anything, if they begin to take on the characteristics of your discipleship, you will make them proud and arrogant people, which is more like the enemy of their souls than the redeemer of their souls. Paul says, look, yeah, yeah, I'm writing this book. I know it's going to be Bible, too, when he's writing the Philippians. And he writes almost half of the New Testament books. He is considered a great apostle of the church. He is one that after Jesus had gone uh, back to heaven and he had ascended on high, he came back for Paul specifically. On his road to Damascus, he reveals himself to Paul. He speaks audibly to Paul and calls him into discipleship. Paul is a man who had enough uh, a weight in the early church that when Peter was out of line with the Galatians and acting hypocritically, Paul steps to Peter face to face and calls him out. Paul's not a joke, but he says, man, I don't have it all together. I, 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 I'm still a mess in process and I need some help. God is working in my life. If you have a biblical self-understanding, first of all, you have humility. And I want you to look at the next part of this verse. He says, but I press on to make it my own. Again, talking about I want, I desire this the, 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 the finality of this resurrection body, this perfect state, I'm not there yet, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says, I'm straining, I'm moving forward, I'm pressing on, why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The next letter in the acronym is B, it's belonging. Belonging. Belonging is a powerful reality. When you understand 
where you belong, to whom you belong, your deepest sense of belonging is that out of which you are living your life. Every single day. Your deepest sense of belonging. And so Paul recognizes and realizes that not only has Christ Jesus come to redeem the world and to change everything in the universe, but he's come for me. Let's recap, stand up. Just join me in a little bit of, just a little bit of heresy for a moment as I put recap in the position of God. So uh, we are pretending right now that this young man is God. And here I am, and, and the scripture tells us in, in Romans 1 that we all suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And it says in verse 21 that although we knew him uh, to be God, we didn't bow to him, but we came, but became futile in, uh, in our lives, and we walk away from God. There's none good, no, not one. In Isaiah, he says, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way. I'm walking away from God. That's what I've done, that's what you've done, and occasionally I may look back and look at him, but I'm walking away from God because in my sin, I desire distance be between myself and the one who would own me, the one who would uh, tell me what I have to do. I want to do what I want to do the way I want to do it. But Paul recognizes and realizes that at one point, though he was walking far away from God, God began to pursue him. God came after him. And at one point, God grabbed him. And though I fought against him, though I didn't want anything to do with it. Bro, you're kind of strong. You've been in the gym? Okay. All right. So I'm fighting against him. He's got me. And eventually he flips me around and looks me on the eye. And I begin to see that he loves me. He cares for me. And I begin to give my life to him. And now it's not because he's overpowering me, but because he loves me and I want him desperately. Paul understands. Whatever other sense of belonging he may have, the sense that overwhelms his life is I belong to God. He has gotten a hold of me. I'm his. Look, we have a lot of different affiliations in our lives, whether it's by uh, 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 what we do, whether it's where we're from, whether it's ethnicity. There are many ways in which we can describe ourselves, and they're all legitimate at a certain level. Where it becomes illegitimate and sinful and, and, and bad is when we put anything above the reality that I belong to Christ. And Paul recognizes that this Jesus who's going to turn the whole universe upside down and bring everything and everyone to his knees, this Jesus came for me. He came for me. And so an accurate understanding of self means we know who we belong to. Not only that, not only humility and belonging, but here's the last part. It starts in verse 13. Is that we have, a, we are called upward in Christ. We're called upward. C and U. So you put those letters together, it's H-B-C-U. Some of y'all know what that is. Other people are saying... HBCU, I don't get it. It's all right. But I'm not talking about Bethune-Cookman right now. Or FAMU. My wife went to FAMU High School. High school at FAMU. Not talking about Howard University. I'm talking about a biblical self-understanding that has us as those who uh, are humble, who understand our sense of belonging, and that we're called upward. You have an upward calling in Christ. Not simply if you're called to be a preacher or a deacon or a missionary, but if you're a Christian, you're called upward in Christ. Look at verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting here. He says, I love the way he says it in this verse. He says, there's one thing I do. And then he gives three verbs. I'm like, okay, one plus one plus one does not equal one. Isn't that three things? But, but actually, if you look at the structure of this passage in verse 13, the two verbs that he uses there, forgetting and straining, they are participles and they are, are subservient to the main verb of the passage in, in verse 14, where he says, I press on toward the goal. So what that's doing is letting us know, what does pressing on look like? I'm glad you asked. It looks like verse 13. It looks like forgetting what lies behind. And it looks like straining towards what is ahead. So Paul says, first of all, that as I uh, am heeding this upward call from Jesus Christ, he says, I'm forgetting what lies behind. Now, what that, and he's using the language here of a race. Do you see this athletic language, right? He, he says, I'm forgetting what lies behind. Look, if you're going to win the race, if you're spending all your time looking at the other runners, you're probably not going to win the race. We just saw the Olympics. A lot of races were lost because people were looking around at other folks. But um, if, if you're going to win the race, you need to forget what's behind and you need to press forward to what is ahead. Now, that doesn't mean that I've forgotten everything that ever happened in my life. I, I go home after uh, services today and I see this woman and I don't remember. Who are you, by the way? It's my wife. Now, that may happen to me occasionally, but hopefully not too much. It doesn't mean you just forget everything in life. As a matter of fact, earlier in this passage, in verse 5, Paul uh, begins to recount some of his past history. And he, he says, look, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. He, he talks about some of his History, So it doesn't mean you've forgotten everything, but what he's saying and what he's emphasizing when he says forgetting what lies behind is that my life is about a forward movement toward the upward call of God in Christ. It's not about anything else. And the reality is that for many of us, we are so stuck in our past. Our past has such a hold. Maybe your past has such a hold on you that you could not honestly say you're pressing on toward the mark because the past is keeping you from that. Perhaps it's past abuse, perhaps it's past hurts, perhaps it's frustrations, perhaps some really terrible things have happened to you in your life. And this scripture is not saying you just need to forget about it and move on. You need to deal with that past. Because for many people who would say, I've forgotten everything behind, the reality is you haven't forgotten it, you just, you just not, you've just never dealt with it. And so when someone steps to you who has a, a little bit of similarity in some way to someone that's hurt you in the past, you have an automatic response that you don't even know where it comes from, where you want to choke them in Jesus' name. And you don't even know where that comes from because, oh, I've dealt with that. I've, for, I've forgiven him. I, that's, that's in my past. I, I don't even remember that. Yes, you do. And it's dealing with you. So we all have to deal with our past and some of us, uh, like, like what, what would have been a, 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 an issue for Paul if he didn't bring this to Christ was Paul was like the man among the Hebrews before he came to Christ. He was like, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised the eighth day. Ouch, but it was cool. He, he, says, he says, look, I was a persecutor of the church. I was a Pharisee. I was that dude was all of that. But he says, you know what? I count that all as nothing. For the surpassing value 
of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean anything to me. Sometimes we are living in the glories of our past, in our press clippings, in what someone says about us, in what, uh, what is on our wall with a diploma. We're living in these glories and looking at our past, and Paul says, no, 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 no. I forget what lies behind. Because I need to make the trajectory of my life forward moving. And he says in this verse 13, I'm straining towards what lies ahead. He says, I'm straining for that thing. It's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. It means to exert oneself to the uttermost, to strain and exert. You see that in a race. There was one particular race that I'll never forget from these last Olympics. It was the women's 400-meter finals. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. So this young lady from uh, the Bahamas, Shawnee Miller, was leading the race. But there was a, a, a young woman from uh, America, the U.S., who had won more medals. She was about to, to set a record for the most medals won by a U.S. A female track athlete, an incredible athlete, uh, Alex... Uh, Allison Felix, Allison Felix. And so uh, Shawnee Miller's ahead of her, but Allison Felix is coming on like gangbusters. And as they near the finish line, it looks like to anyone who's watching the race that by the time they get there, Allison Felix is going to pull ahead. But at the very last moment in that race, Shawnee Miller throws her body across that line and beats Allison Felix out by seven one-hundredths of a second. She wins the gold medal. She laid it all out there on the track. That's the picture of straining with everything in me to reach that goal. And because she did that, she gets the prize. She gets the gold medal. One of the highest accomplishments, the highest accomplishment you could hope for as a track athlete. She gets the gold medal. Paul says, I'm straining forward not for a gold medal, but for the upward call of God in Christ. Look, a gold medal is a great accomplishment. I'm not putting that down in any way, but that's not going to do anything for you in eternity. Paul says, I'm straining for something that will, 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 will never go away. I'm straining to honor my God, and I'm straining for that prize and that hope that I have that's grounded in Christ. He says, I'm straining with all that I have to fulfill my calling in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if an athlete will throw themselves across the finish line, what will you do? Are you giving it all you have as you walk out this Christian life, or are you just passing time, killing time, most of the time. And once in a while, you get your training on. Paul says, no, I'm always in training. It's present tense in the Greek, which means it's something that keeps going on. I'm straining forward all the time, pressing on to make this thing my own. And a biblical understanding of self, humility, belonging, and called upward. You're called upward to Christ. If you're going to make disciples, you are going to be a person who understands who you are in Christ and where you're going. If you're going to be an effective disciple maker. But not only that, look with me at verse 17 where we get the second characteristic of a disciple maker. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eye on those who walk according to the example that you have. He says, uh, I want you to imitate my life. Now this is where I say that discipleship gets real gutsy and it gets real raw because Paul is saying, I want you to have an up-close and personal view of my life. I want you to imitate me. Look, when, when you do, when, when, when a professional comedian or someone else does a good imitation of another person, Sometimes when someone's good at it, you know who they're about to mimic before they even say a word, right? Because they've got 
not only the inflection of their voice, but they've got their body language and they understand the person in such a way that they get into that character. Look, I'm not a professional comedian or I, I can't uh, do voices real well, but there is one particular guy that I, I try to do his voice sometimes. And, and look, I've been to Malawi a number of times. Three of the times that we've been there, Bill Clinton or Hillary has been in Malawi. And sometimes I think they're maybe like stalking me a little bit or something. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what's going on. And none of this is political, but, but so, sometimes I wonder when Bill is in uh, Malawi and he may speak to the Malawian parliament, um, what he might say. And so um, when you go to Malawi, you learn a little bit of the language, which is Chichewa. And one of the words that we've learned is how to say thank you very much, Zikomo Kwambiri, or, you know, put a little Malawi jantantan on that, and it's Zikomo Kwambiri. And many times when you hear it, hear it said there, uh, especially by an MC or at an event, they'll say it a number of times in a row. So you hear Zikomo Kwambiri, Zikomo Kwambiri, Zikomo Kwambiri. So I'm wondering, at the end of Bill Clinton's speech in the parliament in Malawi, what is he saying? And it might be something like this. I want to thank you. Truly, Malawi is the warm heart of Africa. And may I just say, Zikomo Kwambiri. Zikomo Kwambiri. Zikomo Kwambiri. Thank you very much. Zikomo Kwambiri. Um, when you imitate someone, you got to get into that character a little bit. Spike Lee tells a story about when uh, uh, Denzel Washington took on the role of Malcolm X. And Powerful film, powerful performance, should have won the Academy Award. But um, he, Denzel, the year before he was about to film that, said, I, I, I'm saying no to all these other jobs because I need to spend a year to really get in character and understand this person. And so for that year, he stopped eating pork. He said, I'm going to play a Muslim. I need to do some Muslim things. So he would not go over to the bodega and get that sandwich that I occasionally get in Jesus' name. No more pork. He, he began to learn Arabic because he said, I need to read the Quran. And I want to read the Quran in the original language. And so he's working on his Arabic. He's reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. He's looking at all of uh, the speeches and anything where he can see Malcolm on tape because he wants to really get into this character. And there's a certain scene in the movie and all of the... The, the speeches in the movie that were done were uh, from the exact words of Malcolm X as, as the movie was written. And so they're in one of the scenes and doing one of the speeches, and uh, Denzel gets to the end of the speech, and Spike Lee's the director. He's about to call cut on the scene, but Denzel keeps going. And he says he went on for five more minutes with a powerful, impassioned speech. And although there were no cue cards for it, although there was nothing written for it, although this is not anything that uh, uh, Malcolm had actually said, uh, Spike Lee said the words that he, he did in that impromptu speech were even more powerful than Malcolm's original words. And he says to, uh, he asked Denzel Washington, he said, how did you do that? And he said, I don't know how I did that. He said, I just got into character. Let me ask you, are you getting into character in Christ? You know, are, are you, as, as you're imitating the ways of God, as you're learning God, are you getting into the character of Christ? See, as disciple makers, we need to invite people into our lives. To see us, not in a hermetically sealed environment where everything is perfect and everything always goes well in our lives, but in the reality of our actual walk with God. And when they do that, they're not going to, are they going to see perfection? No. Are they going to see Jesus? Yes.
Yes. They'll see Jesus as you walk with him. Look, when, when you are imitating uh, the Lord, when you are being discipled in Christ, you're not living your life off of cue cards. You're not painting by the numbers, making sure that you keep the red in line where it says number 14 and it doesn't go over into the blue. But you are, you are you're painting a beautiful painting in the place where God has called you, in the context that he's given you to exhibit and to, and, and to live out what it means to be a Christian in your context. That's what God calls you to, and He enables you to do. And so He calls us as believers in Christ to invite others to imitate our lives. Are you doing that? If you're a mature believer, are you doing that? If you walk with God for a while, are you inviting others into your life? You don't have to make a whole new schedule for discipleship. You simply need to invite people into parts of your life that you're already doing, and invite them to see and to walk with you in that part of your life. But you need to do it. The, the call of the scriptures to uh, the church is to make disciples. If you're not in that process somewhere in your life, then you're living a substandard Christian life. It's jerry-rigged. It's, it's a mess. It's not what God called you to. And so he's called you to a life where you are consistently inviting others in. Not when everything's good, but at any time. Watch me as I walk with God. Listen, maybe you're a new Christian, you're a young Christian, and you have not walked with God very long at all. Maybe you feel like, well, I'm not there yet. I don't know if I can do that. But who are you looking to? to disciple you? Who are you looking to build a relationship with and to walk with and to learn from and to grow from? Because it won't be long that God is calling you to do that for someone else. You don't get a five-year or a 10-year uh, period where, no, 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 I need to grow, grow, grow. No, you need to grow now. You need to walk now. And you need to look then for others who need a little help to go the next step. That's the life of the church. That's what discipleship really is. Let's look at the last part here. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 20. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to himself. We need a biblical understanding of self. We need a consistent invitation to imitation. And lastly, as an effective disciple maker, we need a contagious expectation of the coming Christ. A contagious expectation of the coming Christ. What Paul ends this passage with is what he began it with. He said, I haven't reached there yet. I haven't attained fully to this resurrection. But at the end of the chapter, at the end of this section, he's saying, but I'm awaiting the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to transform this lowly body to be like his glorious body. He has a contagious expectation of the coming of Christ. And I love the way he starts uh, this, this section here where he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. He's writing to a group of people in a city, Philippi, which is a Roman colony. It's a unique city. It's the first church that he planted in Europe. And uh, it's unlike any other city in the area because it's a city that has become a colony of Rome. A great battle was fought there where uh, those who had killed Julius Caesar, Brutus and Cassius, uh, are, are met in battle by Mark Antony and by Octavian. And Mark Antony and Octavian win that battle. Octavian becomes the emperor Augustus Caesar that we see in the pages of Scripture. Because of this great battle in this place, 
When he becomes emperor, he names Philippi a Roman colony distinct from anywhere else in this section of Greece. That if you are a citizen there, you have all the the privileges and all the blessings of Roman citizenship. You don't have to pay tribute to the emperor. You get to govern yourselves. And there are many advantages that go along with this citizenship. And those who live there are aware of it. They are proud of it. They are steeped in it. And yet what Paul says is not, we are, look at my citizenship as a Roman citizen. But he says, my citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. My my belonging is in Christ. I'm a citizen of heaven, first and foremost, way beyond anything else. That's what matters to me. That's what makes me tick, he says. And so uh, he's talking about this longing that he has to, 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 to see this lowly body, this broken body, uh, be made new and to take on a glorious body. In Romans 8, 19, Paul says that the whole creation is is waiting to see, is is stretching out its neck to see the glorious coming of the sons of God. J.B. Phillips translates that verse this way. He says, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. When we were in... Africa a few weeks ago, one night we spent three and a half hours away from anything that was remotely like a city. We were out in the middle of a village, in the middle of what we would call nowhere. But what we noticed as we looked to the sky at night was that the stars were more brilliant than anything we'd ever seen, particularly in Philadelphia. (laughs) And uh, some of our folks were seeing shooting stars going here and there. And I looked up and I could clearly see the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. Someone saw uh, one of the constellations. I think it was Orion's Belt. I don't know nothing about Orion's Belt, but I think I saw it that night because the stars were so clear. And we were blown away as we looked at the, the beauty and the splendor of the creation of God. Stars millions and even billions of miles away. Yet what Paul says in that passage in Romans is that all those stars, all those galaxies, they are on their tiptoes waiting to see you and you and you and me come into the fullness of the glorious uh, end that we have as we put on these glorious new bodies in Christ. See, all creation is waiting for that. A contagious expectation of the coming of Christ. Let me finish with this. Making disciples... It's the hardest work you'll ever do. But it's also the most rewarding work you'll ever do because it's what you're called to do as a believer in Christ. In Luke chapter 7, Luke records a story of Jesus going to the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And as he goes to Simon's house to eat, there's a woman there. And the Bible says that the woman comes up behind Jesus and gets at his feet. And she begins to cry tears and wash his feet with her tears and the bible says that the woman is a woman of the city and that she's a sinner but she cries and she wipes his feet with her hair she's kissing his feet she's taking some pure ointment from her alabaster box and she is anointing jesus feet as well simon the pharisee looks at what's going on And the Bible says that he says to himself, if he was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this really was. Now, I wonder what she was doing at his house, but that's probably a different sermon. (laughs) But she's there. And Jesus says, Simon, can we talk? He says, sure. And the Lord says to Simon, there was a certain money lender And two men owed him money. One owed him $80,000. The other owed him $8,000. And when the money lender saw that neither one could repay him, he forgave both of their debts. Simon, which one of these men 
do you think will love him more? And Simon says, I suppose the one who owed him more. I suppose, really? Come on, Simon, you know it's the one who owed him more. But he says, I suppose, the one who owed him more. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. He said, I came in your house, and you didn't wash my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears. He says, you didn't give me a kiss, which was the custom uh, at that time, but he says, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in here. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with this precious ointment. And then he turns to the woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I wonder if we're going to make disciples, if we're going to have the guts to actually invite people into the cracks and crevices of our lives to actually make disciples for Jesus, we're only going to do that if we understand the depth of gratitude that we owe to the one who has forgiven us much. Do you know he's forgiven you much? As much as that woman, whatever her condition was, Simon the Pharisee needed forgiveness just as much as she did. And so it is with us. We make disciples as we understand the one who has brought us to himself and made us his disciples. Let's do the work of the church together by the grace of God and by the power of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful and grateful today that you have given us everything that we need as your disciples in the person of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray, O God, that you would use many in this place today to take on the call, the upward call of God in Christ And that we would understand ourselves as those called to make disciples. For those who are young and new in the faith, I pray that they will find a place with others who will help them to take the next steps in their journey of discipleship in Christ. But Lord, by all means and in every way, grow us to be more and more like you. Have your way and be glorified in all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.